How many of you are on Facebook? If you are, one of the questions they ask you is what's your relationship status? I never quite understood why they did that. Why do they need so much information? Why does everybody else need to know? I thought these were supposed to be your friends. If they're your friends, don't they know what your relationship status is? And I always thought it would be awkward if there was a group of single friends and then uh, one of them, you know, like one of the, the single ladies was dating and her relationship was, uh, you know, in a relationship and then it goes to single and then all the guys like it because she's single. And I thought it would be a little bit awkward, so I'm not sure exactly why, but I think for all relationships, they're complicated. So I think that's the status for all relationships, no matter what you were in. Relationships are complicated. And the words we're going to hear Jesus speak today, he tells us how to live in relationships with one another. Some of the words are going to be obvious, and some of them are going to be hard to live out in our lives. Did Jesus really say, love your neighbor? I think this is an easy one. We all know this. And we would expect God to tell us to love our neighbors. And in fact, a lawyer asked Jesus, what are the greatest commandments? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said this. Listen, Israel, the most important is this. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. An excellent summary of the law. You would expect that from Jesus, wouldn't you, <laughs> to do that? And we often do keep this in mind, and churches even use this as their mission statement, that we are to love God and love others. But this is where it gets difficult. When you think about who is your neighbor... There was a lawyer also came to Jesus and tried to justify himself and asked Jesus that very question. Yeah, well, I can love my neighbor, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus told the parable that we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you see, I think sometimes we forget the shocking value of this parable. Because this parable included a man who gets robbed and is left for dead. And then... If we told it in terms today, a pastor came by and ignored him, left him for dead. A deacon came by, left him for dead. It was an Islamic stream, extremist who came by and had mercy on him and had compassion on him and made sure that he was well and took him to an end. You see, we forget that the Samaritan was hated by the Jews. So you insert your biggest enemy into that. The parable of the good, fill in the blank, maybe even with a personal name, I hope not, someone you just despise, or a group of people that you just look down upon. That's the one who showed mercy to someone who was in need. And the man had the means to meet that need. And Jesus even asked the lawyer at the end of the parable, uh, which one was a neighbor to this man? This guy was smart. He could figure it out. He said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So it's not easy, it's not hard to understand that Jesus would say, love your neighbor. But when we realize 
that our neighbor is anyone who is in need. If we have the means to meet that need, we are to help them. Even if it's someone that we wouldn't particularly want to hang out with or don't even like or might even consider an enemy. Because so many times we say our neighbor is, you know, our next door neighbor, and he's a pretty nice guy. Or this neighbor, and she's pretty cool, so I don't mind helping them. Or our church family, we love to help our church family. There's my neighbor. But it's just not limited to that. To any who are in need. And of course, we'd have to have the means to help them. But if we have the means and they're in need, we meet that need. That's how we love our neighbor. So this is the challenge from these words of Jesus. To love our neighbor by helping him when he's in need. And resist the temptation to ignore him or make excuses for not helping. And don't we often do that? I don't have the time. I don't have the money. I don't know him well enough. Someone else will take care of the need. And so Jesus' words remind us that loving our neighbor is a lot harder to do than it is to say. But in doing so, it's the essence of the commands. It's the essence of what God expects as he commands us to love him and to love others. This is a little bit harder. Jesus really said, love your enemies. Y'all are smart enough to know he did say that. But let's talk about that for a moment. I've never seen a bumper sticker <laughs> that says, I heart my enemies. Don't we see them all the time? I love New York. I love my grand dogs. I love uh, whatever. I've yet to see a billboard, a bumper sticker, where it says, I heart my enemies. Maybe we as Christians especially should have that on our cars. Because that is the mark of a Christian that makes us unique from everybody else on this planet. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, what Jesus says is that anybody can love someone who loves them back. Anybody can love someone they like. That's what he says here at the end of these verses. You could take the, the worst criminal in prison, and that guy is going to love the people who look out for him and have his back. You could take the, the most sinful person on this planet, and that person is going to be able to love those who love him. That's easy to do. Everybody does that. That's nothing special. If we as Christians love each other and only love those who uh, are kind to us and good to us, compassionate to us, anybody can do that. He says, that's not what I've commanded you to do. Because I know you're going to do that. You are to love those who hate you. You are to pray for those who persecute you. That's 
Christian love, which is completely different and so much deeper than the love of the world. That's the love that Jesus had. Because remember, Paul tells us that Jesus died for us when? Not when we were his sheep, his children, his friends, his brothers. He died for us when we were his enemies. That's when Jesus died for us. We don't think about that often. Then the reality, before we were saved, we were enemies of God. Aren't we glad that he loved us then? And didn't reject us? Hate us? He loved us then, so he tells us to love in the same way. To love those who hurt us, who persecute us, who hate us. Now again, this is hard for Christians because lots of times we say, well, I love everybody. Now don't you, I mean, and we're kind of genuine in that. I mean, I kind of said it flippantly, but I didn't really mean to say it that way. But we do kind of believe that. You try to think, well, who's my enemy? I don't really hate anybody. There's no one that I would, uh, you know, be excited to see them fail or get hurt. Or, you know, so genuinely, Christians often really don't have any hatred and animosity toward a particular person. That's good. I'm glad that's the case. But often, too, the reason we don't is because the only people we know are other Christians. So that's why it's easy to love them and not have hatred and animosity towards them. So maybe think, though, more about if we really do love everybody. I want you to think about maybe individual people that you know, or we could also talk of groups of people. Are there any that you ignore or you avoid? That's one way that uh, we're not really comfortable with someone, we just ignore them. That way we don't have to get too close to them. Don't have to really love them. We can refuse to talk to them. When their name comes up in a conversation, we're always telling people how bad they are. If they were in need, we let someone else help them. In fact, maybe we're always trying to compete against them, to be better than they are, to show how much better we are than them. Or what if something happens? And you secretly find yourself saying, well, they deserve that. I'm kind of glad that's happened to them. Or if something good happens to them, you say, why did God let that happen to them? Does he know they don't deserve that? No, if you've got friends like this, who needs enemies? You know, this is how you treat people you call friends. I'm just trying to help you to expand what you think of as an enemy. Because I think sometimes we think of enemy and we're thinking of someone we want to go into combat against, or we think in big groups, you know, we think of a big country or uh, an enemy that hates the United States, and that's our enemy, and, you know, how am I going to love North Korea, okay? I mean, I'm supposed to love that country, so we really can't love them, maybe we pray for its people, but, you know, it's not really affecting our lives, it's not really challenging us to really do what Jesus says to love our enemies. That's why I'm trying to challenge you to think more broadly maybe of brothers or sisters that you would say, hey, I love them, but then maybe you treat them in one of these ways. Are you really loving them? You're treating them like an enemy when you love them in that way. And that's where the challenge is in these words. 
to love and pray and treat our enemies as friends without ignoring our enemy-like behavior. What I mean is, are you truly treating them like you love them or are you treating them like an enemy even though you say you love them? Jesus says to love, to pray for those who hate us and persecute us. But the words get harder to live out. We're not done yet. (laughs) We're just getting started. Treat others like you would want to be treated. I want you to think about this. Guys, ladies, when you come home from work, how would you like to be treated when you come home from work? When you come home from work, is it uh, like this? Is that how you're welcomed? Is that, or is it more like this? And this is kind of a weird picture. This, there's a dog's face fo- uh, photoshopped onto this person. That's, but anyway, I mean, you know, when you think about it, when you come home from work, wouldn't a lot of us love to be greeted warmly, lovingly? Wouldn't we love to, I'm just going to move on to the next one because that's a weird picture. Okay, uh, wouldn't we just love to be greeted warmly and lovingly? Maybe even, you know, the, if we just fantasized about how we would come home, you know, here's your chair, uh, here's your slippers, uh, here's something to drink. Uh, Just relax, supper will be ready in an hour, here's your favorite TV show, here's something to read, wow. You know, that's what we're fantasizing about, but that's not reality, is it, when we come home? Especially if you have kids, you know, maybe there's chaos, or maybe you both come home and you're both tired, you both just lay on the couch because you're both worn out. So, but anyway, the reason I say this, think about this, think about how you would like to be treated when you come home. Why don't you do that for your spouse when they come home? We don't usually think about that, do we? When we think about it, we just grumble by the fact that our spouse didn't treat us the way we wanted to be treated without thinking about treating them that way. I'm not great at it, but one thing I know that Sarah does not like is to come home to a kitchen that's dirty. If there's dishes in the sink or even dishes in the dishwasher. So... Often I'm home before she is because I pick up Johnny from school. So that's the one thing at least I make sure happens. If she comes home, there's no dishes to look at. Okay, so at least I do that. I'm not great at the the slippers and the dinner and everything else, but that's one thing. I'm working on it. My point is, if we want to be treated some way, why don't we treat other people that way? Instead of complaining about them not treating us that way. That's what we usually do. Jesus says, just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. We often call it the golden rule. But it goes beyond just treating people the way you would want to be treated. Jesus goes on to say to treat your enemies kindly. Treat your enemies with compassion. Treat them the way that you would want to be treated. So we're not talking about treating your spouse who comes home the way that you would want to be treated. We're talking about treating your enemy the way you would want to be treated. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
I do believe Jesus is using hyperbole. He's exaggerating, but he's proving a point. If someone wants to sue you, he's saying, well, give them what they want and give them more. And if someone comes to your house and wants to borrow, give them whatever they want. Open up your house, say, come and take it. If anyone says to you, I'm going to make you run a mile with me. I've got a new health kick, and you're going to run with me, and you're going to run a mile. And you say, good, let's run a mile. Let's keep on going. I'm going to do another mile. Let's go. So if, if someone is uh, your enemy and is forcing you, is hurting you, what Jesus is saying, don't return them back with evil, but love them and treat them the way you would want to be treated. Repay their evil with good. Now we're getting to what's very, very difficult to live out. Paul even says it this way, the same idea with different words. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. He says in the verses before, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. And so we look at the last part and say, good. He deserves, no, he deserves it. That's always confused people. It sounds like Paul is saying, be nice to your enemy, and then he's going to get it in the end. But... Uh, it is, I'll be honest with you, no one really knows what Paul is saying here. It's, he's quoting from Proverbs. So some think maybe it refers to uh, an ancient Egyptian ceremony where people who were repentant would put a pot of coals on their head to show their repentance and to show their humility. And that makes good sense to me. Because what Paul is saying, if someone is, is badgering you, is hurting you, is doing evil against you, and you love them back, and you do good to them, and you treat them well, you're going to conquer their evil, and they, in return, are going to repent of how they've been treating you. They're going to humble themselves. They're going to realize what they were doing was wrong. So that makes good sense to me. What Jesus is saying, Paul is saying, when, when people hurt you, don't get vengeance. Don't treat them the same way they treated you. Rather, when they mistreat you, you treat them the way you would want to be treated. If they mistreat you and do evil to you, then you do good to them. This goes against everything that we feel naturally. You see it in little kids. They retaliate. When one gets hit, the other hits back. When a toy gets stolen, the other one steals it right back. I mean, that's how we are naturally. And God is saying, do the opposite of what comes natural because this is supernatural. This comes from God. This is how God loves. This is how he treats us. To repay evil with good. And so this is the challenge. The challenge is to resist the temptation to treat people differently based on how they treat us. That's how we normally live our lives. In a relationship, if someone treats us well, we're kind to them. We're compassionate. When someone mistreats us, we mistreat them back, or we just simply ignore them and cut them out of our life. And Jesus says, no. You treat them the way you would want to be treated. And when they hit you with evil, you hit them back with good. 
very difficult to live out. But the last one maybe is even the hardest. Did Jesus really say to forgive others 490 times? I want you to look at this headline. I'm going to read you this satirical article. Remember, this is satire. Woman finally off the hook for forgiving her husband as he leaves socks on the floor for the 491st time. Okay, listen to this. Local woman, Christy Larson, is a careful student of God's Word. She especially likes Jesus' emphasis on forgiveness, such as when the Messiah instructed Peter to forgive people 70 times 7. Since reading that passage, Larson has kept a tally of how many times her husband David has left his socks on the floor instead of walking them the five feet to the hamper. Finally this morning, he committed the infraction for the 491st time, absolving Larson of her responsibility to forgive her husband for his annoying faults. Let's see. I've got to forgive him 70 times 7, carry the one, Hey, honey, you're dead meat, she cried as she realized he had exceeded the forgiveness limit. I am now allowed to hold this against you for the rest of our lives. Ha! David Larson is usually a staunch proponent of interpreting the Bible literally where possible, but since this morning's incident, he has come out in favor of a metaphorical interpretation of that particular passage. Jesus just meant forgive me forever, like a really big unattainable number, I hope. The husband and father is also rapidly running out of his free passes for sticking a dish in the sink without so much as a quick rinse, sources confirmed at publishing time. So he's in big trouble. But what did Jesus mean when he said forgive 490 times? This is the verses. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times should I... Excuse me. Lord, how many times can my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. Now, that's interesting where this passage comes because I think we disconnect the verses before this with these verses. The verses before this is when Jesus is telling his disciples, if you have a brother who sins against you, go to that brother and tell the brother, hey, you hurt me. You sinned against me. If the brother repents, then the relationship's restored. If your brother doesn't listen to you, take two others with you and, and confront your brother. And if your brother repents, then the relationship's restored. But if he won't, then you're supposed to treat him like an unbeliever. So Peter hears that. And so Peter's calculating. Well, let me think. This is a lot of work, actually. If I, my brother hurts me, I'm supposed to go to him and try to fix things up. And if that doesn't work, I'm supposed to take more people. This is going to take a lot of work. This is a lot of effort. So he's thinking, well, Jesus, how many times do I have to do that? You know, if he sins against me one time, two times, I'm sure Peter thought he was being very generous. And he thought, well, gosh, if seven times, gosh, that's got to be the limit. If a brother just keeps coming back seven times and he's still, the relationship's still not restored, that's got to be the end of it. Seven's the number of perfection, isn't it? I mean, that's what we see in the Bible. So seven times has got to be it. And Jesus says, nope, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Which our math teachers would tell us is 490 times. I think maybe husband here has it more right than his wife. 
Jesus is saying, really, on an unlimited number of times. Every time. Every time your brother sins against you, you forgive him. If it's one time, seven times, 50 times, again, we would hope 490 would never happen, but obviously in this household it did. Okay, so that's what uh, it's supposed to be. And then Jesus tells this parable to explain it exactly what he's saying. There is a, a master who has servants, and he's going through his books, and he realizes that many of them owe him money. So he's bringing them in one by one. He must have started at the top because the one he brings in owes this master 10,000 talents. Now that means nothing to you. But let me try to put it in some terms we can understand. 10,000 talents is equal to 6,000 denarii. That doesn't tell you anything either, does it? But a denarii was what the average worker would get for working one day. Okay? So I'm just going to throw out a number. Let's say you made $100 a day. This guy owed the master $6 billion. So he did what anyone would do who owed $6 billion. He begged for mercy. Who's going to be able to pay back $6 billion? I would have liked to try to rack up $6 billion in debt. That'd be fun. But anyway, he can't pay it back. No one would be able to. So he begs for mercy. And the master listens to his plea for mercy, and he says, I forgive you. Your debt's canceled. Six billion dollars. You'd imagine that guy's pretty happy. And he was. But he had a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii. Not a small amount. Again, if you made $100 a day, his fellow servant owed him $10,000. So if you only make $100 a day, $10,000 is quite a bit. It's about a third of your yearly wage. But how does $10,000 compare to $6 billion? That's the point Jesus is making. His fellow servant owed him a minuscule amount compared to what he was just forgiven. Yet he took his fellow servant and he choked him by the neck and he had the guards throw him into prison and said, you will not get out of prison until you pay me back every penny. Well, the other servants saw what had happened, and they weren't too happy. They went and told the master, and you can imagine the master flipped his lid. He was not happy with this servant. He brought him in and said, how could you not forgive your brother when I had forgiven you everything? So he took that servant, and he said to the guards, throw him into prison until he pays it all back. So you can imagine he spent his life in prison. And then Jesus says, that's what the Father is going to do to you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. Some harsh words, but Jesus is making a very obvious point. How much of our sin has God forgiven us? All of it. All of it. I don't know how you'd put a monetary value on it. If you did, I'm probably far past $6 billion. How can you put value on disobedience and evil against a holy God. Yet in His love, He's forgiven all of it. So how can we go around and not forgive our brothers, our sisters? How can we not forgive people when they hurt us 
or sin against us when God has forgiven everything. Again, think about God is, God is holy, so any sin against Him is a huge deal. So think of all of the sin that I personally have committed, which is all a big, huge deal against Him. Again, comparison to what someone, one of you or someone near me does to me, there's no comparison. So I should forgive. And as we learn from Peter's question, every time. Now when you think about that, that is very, very difficult to do. And I know you're already trying to think of ways to get out of it. <laughs> you're already thinking of ways that it doesn't seem fair, that doesn't make sense. But this is what God's called us to do. This is the bar that he has set. Now I, I will say this, not to temper what Jesus has said, but we do have to remember about forgiveness. The goal of it is to restore a relationship. Anytime there's sin in a relationship, the relationship's broken. That happens with us and God. Even those of us who are Christians and we're saved and heaven is our home, when we sin, our relationship with God's broken. Even as Christians, even as heaven-bound Christians. That's why we're commanded with God to confess our sin every day and to repent of it. So He will forgive us and restore the relationship. So when you hurt me and, or I hurt you and a relationship's broken... It's going to stay broken until if I've hurt you, I go to you and I say, I'm sorry. I repent. I tell you what I've done, that it was wrong. And when I've done that, your godly response is to forgive me. And our relationship is restored. Now sometimes you want to forgive someone, but they won't come to you and say, I'm sorry. They're not going to come to you and repent. Well, that relationship is not going to be restored. It can't be restored unless someone comes in repentance and confession and then they receive forgiveness. And so sometimes we talk about forgiving someone who has hurt us who's never going to come and ask for forgiveness or say they're sorry. What we can do to help ourselves is we can let go of the hate. We can let go of the hurt as we trust in God. But that relationship's not restored. And until they come in repentance, it never will be. But certainly, it can help us. Because we can let go of what we're holding on to that's causing us hurt. We can let it go. And there can be repentance. And if they come in repentance, there can be restoration. And this is the last thing about forgiveness, because sometimes we have the unbiblical idea of forgive and forget. It's impossible to forget. You cannot forgive and forget, and that's not what God is calling us to do. When you forgive and forget, what that implies to me is that you say, I forgive you, and I erase the memory from my mind that you ever hurt me. Well, you can't do that. That memory's still there. And in fact, there still can be consequences, even though there's forgiveness. So again, sometimes we have the misconception that forgiveness means, well, you hurt me, I forgive you, now there's no consequences for what you did. God doesn't forgive us that way. He forgives us this way in the sense that there's no eternal consequences for our sin because He does not hold it against us. He's paid for it all. But every time we sin, there are consequences, even though God's forgiven us. 
And so we can forgive someone and be genuine, and a relationship can be restored, but maybe because of how they hurt us, our relationship's different. And maybe because of the way they've hurt us, the trust hasn't been built back yet. And so the relationship's not the same. But there's genuine forgiveness. It's been restored. And so the challenge of forgiving people is to truly forgive them, even when they continually sin against us, without becoming a doormat. And that's always our fear, that if someone comes and sins against us and we forgive them, they'll do it again. And we'll forgive and they'll do it again and they'll do it again and they'll do it again. And we'll just keep getting hurt and hurt and hurt. Well, that's why I say when people come in repentance and confession, we do forgive them, but the circumstances may mean that there's consequences, that a relationship is different, but it is restored. So I hope you're hearing me, what I'm saying, because I'm not trying to water down what Jesus said. Jesus did say to forgive because he's forgiven us and to forgive every time. But it's not forgive and forget. It's forgive, restore the relationship, rework the parameters so that you're not hurt again. But then if you are, and they come in repentance, you forgive. And then reset the parameters again. Dole out the consequences. Change what needs to be changed so that you're not hurt again. So I hope you hear what I'm saying. As I've said in all these messages about Jesus' words, there are difficult words, challenging words, but there's also words of comfort. And these are the words of comfort. What have we looked at? Jesus said, love your neighbors, and even love your neighbors when they seem like they're not the ones that you want to love. And he said to love your enemies, and they certainly are the ones you don't want to love because of the way they treat you. But when they treat you with evil, you treat them back with kindness. And then when someone hurts you, you forgive them. A relationship with all of these commandments is very difficult to do. But this is the comfort. When you do that, that's how people will treat you. So do imagine if we lived in a church, certainly imagine a world where people obeyed these commands. Can you imagine the transformation of this world? If we truly treated people the way we wanted to be treated, if we truly loved our enemies and prayed for them and had love and compassion for them, if we truly uh, returned evil with good, if we truly, honestly, genuinely, from our heart as Jesus commands, forgave people when they hurt us. If, we, if I did that, you would more likely be able to want to do it to me and vice versa, if we all started doing it, it would change the world. And that's what Jesus wants us to do in our relationships, to have godly ones, Christ-like ones, because this is how he has treated us. Again, think about it. He has forgiven all of our sins. He has not treated us the way that we deserve to be treated, but he has treated us in a loving and kind way. He loved us and died for us when we were his enemies. And he loves us in a way that we can't even comprehend. So we must do, go and do likewise. Jesus, my prayer this morning is not for you to help us to understand your words, 
because they're easy to read and easy to understand. I pray that you would help us to do the difficult work of obeying them. And I pray that you would even bring to mind right now at least one person in our lives that we need to treat differently because of your commands this morning. Maybe we need to start treating them like we would want to be treated, or maybe we need to forgive them. Maybe we need to love them. Maybe we need to meet a need they have. And I pray, Lord, we would have the courage to be obedient to you and go to that person and do what you have commanded. Lord, I know seeking forgiveness is hard. I know forgiving is hard. I know loving and treating people the way we want to be treated when they despise us and they hate us and maybe even spit in our face and wish us dead. That is impossible. That's why, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would fill us so that our actions are supernatural. They flow from you, God, who loves unconditionally. Lord, may we love as you love. May we treat each other as you treat us. And Lord, may we see the world transformed because we obey your word. I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.